From Creative Force, I'm Daniel Jester, and this is the e-commerce content creation podcast. In this episode, we are turning it around. Caitlin Andrews, my friend and colleague here at Creative Force, is the host of this episode, and I'm the guest. Caitlin is going to be guest hosting a handful of episodes while I take some vacation time. And as her first guest, we talk a little about my background in the industry, how I came to be the host of this podcast, and what I've learned in that time. There's no teaser quote here. I thought it would sound weird to just be a clip of me again. So we'll jump right in. This is the e-commerce content creation podcast. I, I'm not your host. For this episode, everybody, I'm just introducing your host because this is going to be new. But we have a guest host, uh, Caitlin Andrews. Welcome to welcome to guest hosting the e-commerce content creation podcast. Hello, it's so great to be here. I'm Caitlin Andrews, and this is the Ecom Content Creation Podcast. Is that good? Did I the do e-commerce that content creation podcast? Yeah, but otherwise, okay, I mean, yeah, I so, you you know what? No, you take your liberties. Okay, if you want to call it the Ecom Content Creation Podcast, that's okay. <laughs> Uh, no. It's just like cemented in my brain to say it the same way every time. That was my um, first crack. That was my. That first was your first at crack it. at it. I'm gonna leave it in because this is that's how we roll. <laughs> okay. But I'm the guest. I'm I'm the guest. Yeah. For this episode. I, I thought it would be a cool idea to turn the mic around on Daniel Jester and get to know our host of this podcast. Since I know you do talk and do reference yourself a lot on this podcast, and that's great. I love it. It's one of my favorite parts. But I think because I've been on the podcast, I'm noticing how difficult it really is sometimes to, you know, like... Make it about me? (laughs) No, no, not even that. But just like stay engaged and be excited every single week. And, you know, I think it's a really an amazing thing that you do. So I think it'll be really fun to ask you a couple of questions about what it's been like for you and yeah, maybe just where you came from and how it's affected you and what you've learned. This is something that we've been wanting to do on this podcast for a long time, which is introduce some other perspectives, some other voices we've had in the past. We've had guest co-hosts, I'm desperately trying to go on vacation this year. <laughs> Take some time off. I'm not going anywhere. I just need some time at home to like get some things in order. So this is like you and I have sat, you guest sort of co-hosted that episode with Jasper slash was also a guest because this was a topic that was super relevant to you. But you know, you and I have been taking meetings with potential guests. There's going to be a few more episodes that you will be hosting. This, I believe, will be the first one that our audience, though, is hearing. So, Caitlin... With that, take it away. I'm at your service. I'm your guest for this episode. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for coming on. I appreciate your time. (laughs) So I kind of want to start from the beginning. So if it's all right, I would love to ask you a little bit about like how you got to this point. I know you had mentioned to me before in the past that this was not something you always thought you were going to get into, that it kind of just happened. I would love to know kind of where you started and how you ended up doing this. Yeah, I'll keep it as brief as possible. And some people I think who listen to this podcast have heard some of this story before. Photography had always been a thing, but I was of the mind, like many people were in the early days of digital photography, that like it was impossible to do as a profession. It was just too hard, too competitive. Yeah. I kind of thought I had to do portraits or wedding, and I did, 
Why are we taught that though? We are taught that like you can, you can either get into art or you can get into wedding. (laughs) It never even occurred to me that every single picture that I look at everywhere in the world around me was taken by a photographer. I remember distinctly the day that I realized like somebody shot that burger for that billboard. Like somebody had to take that photo. Who's doing that? And how can I do that? Yeah, totally. I took this job at Smith & Noble because it was the only job that I could find. And I got a job in literally in the call center, like selling window treatments to people over the phone. No. I had some experience through like high school, like later years of high school, working in a call center as like my sort of high school job. And quickly was recruited into the merchandising department. And the merchandising department at that time, there were some reorganizations that were happening. And it turned out that the VP of merchandising, who was my boss... I was working actually as an analyst, a merchandising analyst. So I was taking like sales data against our predictions based on color assortment and the predictions that the merchandisers were making and then trying to reconcile those things and like presenting information. So like I have always had sort of a side thing, like almost my entire life, I've always had sort of a side thing. And I knew I didn't want to shoot weddings, but I always had had this love for photography. When I was like eight years old, I found a camera. There was no film in the camera as far as I knew. But I was just, I was playing with it. I was taking it out in the desert and and shooting sunsets in the desert with no film in this camera. Wait, so who, who eventually taught you how to use a camera? Eventually I got my own digital camera, which was just a consumer camera in like 2004. Mm -hmm. And then when I made the decision that I was going to actually like, I wanted to get into photography, I could not afford to get into digital photography. So I bought a Canon AE-1 and some lenses, and I just taught myself how to use these things. And then once I had a pretty good grasp on it, eventually I did take some community college classes, but I think I was already working at that point. I think I was already working as a photographer at that point. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the aside, like, I was like, I didn't want to shoot weddings, portraiture and, like, family portraits and stuff. I found that also pretty stressful, and my skill level wasn't really there. I was really self-conscious about whether or not I could execute on stuff. And my wife and I decided to start a photo booth business. We went to a wedding where they had a photo booth, and this was probably 2006 yeah. at the time, 2007 maybe. No, it was, it was 2000. It was later. It was 2007 or 2008. And I was like, well, this seems like a pretty good way to earn some of that wedding money. Because that's the thing about wedding photography is like there's money there, and you can stay pretty busy if you're good and talented. But it is very stressful and very hard work. Anytime you're producing creative on demand, it's incredibly stressful. But then you tie in the emotions and the importance of somebody's wedding day, and it's just too much. Photo booths, on the other hand, were super fun, very transactional. I usually was delivering. I would deliver a disc of all of the pictures that we had taken to the couple, and I did that. I tried to do that same day. It turned out it was too much at the time. It was too slow to move all that data and burn it onto a disc and hand it over at the end of the day. And also, like, what am I going to hand, like, the bride and groom are on their way to the honeymoon. And I'm like, oh, here's your pictures of your uncle in the photo booth. Here's your CD, remember? Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. And so we, yeah, because at this time, we hadn't even gone to, like, I think at some point we did switch to thumb drives, but we were still burning onto CDs at the time that we, so we did that for a few years. Yeah, we did that for several years. And I basically used that to fund my way into a decent camera kit. So, like, my own buying my own lenses. And then at Smith & Noble, I realized that we had a studio there. And through, because of the fact that the VP of merchandising had become, had sort of taken over part of the creative department, it created an opportunity for me to go help out in the photo studio. Eventually Mm -hmm. that role for the photographer came open and I had no, I was like, all the merchandise managers were like, you should apply, you should apply, you love photography, you should apply for this. And I'm like, I don't know. 
I, you know, I, uh, I said, I don't have a portfolio for this. They said, here's a bunch of product. Here's a bunch of next season's product. We have all these samples in the studio. You take them home, shoot yourself a portfolio. They were also hiring a new creative director at the time. So the creative director got hired and then immediately was going to hire this photography role. And I don't think mm-hmm. I even met with her. I don't think I even met with her before I knew that she was like looking at my application and my portfolio and stuff. Yeah. And I ended up getting the job. And it was like me in this janky studio, little tiny <laughs> studio with two pillars right in the middle of the room. Of course, always. Yeah. <laughs> with with these two air conditioning vents that were like super powerful and they blew so cross dust. breezes and dust. And But also like I was, I was shooting drapery. So I had to like come up with a system of flags to redirect all of that air because it was like blowing my drapes in the wind in situations when I didn't want that. <laughs> and I was using like Capture One version three before they went to dark mode when it was still like light gray and like Photoshop was the light gray version and all this stuff. I really don't count my career as having really begun until I went to Hotlook. So Hotlook was a flash sale site that Nordstrom bought. And then Nordstrom bought Hotlook just a couple of years before I joined. And in buying Hotlook, they built them a fulfillment center. And part of that fulfillment center was a pretty big product studio. And this was like a revelation to me. Like, oh yeah, your product is all in the fulfillment center. You should build your studio right there so you can avoid having to ship it and do all that stuff. I was one of three photographers that was hired to sort of like, the other two photographers started before me. So they had kind of gotten the studio up and running, but then I joined shortly after. So it was like a brand new studio that we kind of all grew up together. And that's where I did, like, that's where I learned a lot those couple of years Mm -hmm. there, like working with other photographers you know, and over the course of a couple of years had kind of risen in seniority and was training new photographers. And like, you know, the three of us original photographers would often sit and kind of brainstorm different things. Like, you know, at that time we were manually typing in file names off of a SKU tag. Like mm-hmm. the SKU tag would come off the product and we were manually typing and we would sit and like, <laughs> does anybody have this in an Excel spreadsheet? Can we like, yeah. can we get the samples team to email us the spreadsheet so we can just find the right thing and copy and paste it? And that way we're not like misnaming things and all that stuff. And like, oh, should we be putting cameras away every night? We're putting cameras away every night. Is that the most, you know, we were trying like, we were thinking right. of all different ways to try to do this faster and more efficiently. And I had the opportunity to go visit Amazon after a couple of years working for Hotlook. And I flew out to Louisville, Kentucky and walked into the Amazon studio. And it was like stepping five years into the future. It was like, yeah, you know, they nobody graduated. Yeah. Nobody was shooting on sawhorses and plywood. It was purpose, (laughs) purpose built sets that were designed specifically for the thing they were shooting. Like, like sets that were designed for handbags. When you have the money. Yeah. You can I mean, actually get that lighting right in yeah. those multiple camera sets. Yeah, the things <laughs> I saw at the Amazon studio blew my mind, and it was convincing yeah. enough for me to move my young family cross-country to Kentucky to work for them. And I expected to be there for three to five years, but then had the mm-hmm. opportunity to come back to Southern California to open another studio for Amazon. And that's really where I got a chance to like cut my teeth on like managing a really scrappy team. It was a very small, full-time team. We relied heavily on scaling up freelancers. Mm -hmm. And we were also an experimental studio, which added another layer sort of of stress and difficulty to this. Did you have a, like, did you have really strict objectives from Amazon to do things within certain timeframes? And was it just harder and more watched at Amazon? It was definitely more watched, but thankfully, I had my part of it pretty well buttoned up pretty quickly. We had some challenges that we worked through, but I went into it thinking like, 
I'm going to build a process for this that really makes the studio hum and quickly realized that bad things were going to happen if we weren't super hands-on. So I started and ended my day walking the entire studio floor, getting counts of what product was in what status of production. We had no insight really into this in a very simple or easy way. The best thing to do was to walk the studio floor and look at like, I'd gotten burned so many times because, so I should describe a little bit what was experimental about it. We were a step above the supply chain. So like we weren't in a fulfillment center at Amazon. We were in a building that was a distribution center, which some people use synonymously with fulfillment. But the difference Mm -hmm. of an Amazon distribution center is this is where product is getting broken up and sent out to the different fulfillment centers. So a truckload of PlayStations comes in. They crack off a bunch of PlayStations for this fulfillment center and send it over there. And this one, it's like the center of the spoke of a wheel, right? We were supposed to get most of our product through a process called sidelining. So again, if that truckload of PlayStations comes in, they're going to grab one of those PlayStations and send it to the studio because it needs to be shot. The sideline process never worked the way that it was really supposed to work. And when it did work, we literally had no clue what we were getting or how much of it there was going to be. And we had a huge problem with, like, getting duplicates of things constantly. Oh, my God. And so, like, I just couldn't plan for my studio based off of theoretical numbers. Like, I couldn't sit with the samples team and they couldn't, they'd tell me we're going to get 200 samples tomorrow. If I staffed for that, once we cracked open those boxes, it would turn out that only 50 of those samples were actually eligible to be imaged. Mm -hmm. And 150 had problems or otherwise couldn't be shot because they were incorrect in some way. So I got burned many times staffing up for volumes that never materialized Mm -hmm. and just learned that I had to do this. Like, this is where I learned the lesson of, you know, sometimes you have to sacrifice some metrics in service of others. So Mm -hmm. like one of our metrics was the three-day SLA. We needed Mm -hmm. to have our part of it done. Day one was the day we checked in the product. By day three, we needed to have that product out the door. But we also had productivity that we were beholden to as well. So I learned really quickly that it was well worth letting SLA slide mm-hmm. in favor of having better productivity. Because if we are meeting our SLA, but we're also like spending way too much money on freelancers in order to do it, no one was going to be super happy with that. Right. Thankfully, to your question, though, the heat was largely off of me because the sideline process never worked the way that it was supposed to work. So yeah. for that reason, people were really focused on trying to fix that. And I didn't feel like There was a lot of pressure, to be sure. It was a new studio. It was a scrappy studio. And we were really reactive to things that were going on in the network. But I had my part of it pretty buttoned up, and people were pretty focused on figuring out if Sideline was ever going to work. And I think the story there, I don't know if they're still trying to do this, but I think the story there is that it it never worked, and they kind of abandoned that idea. Yeah, I remember doing a studio for a big-name brand kind of on the same level of Evan Amazon, and it was in... It was in, I can't remember. It was in Texas for sure, but it was in the middle of like a bunch of oil rigs. And (laughs) I remember it was a lot of products. Like you'd see towers and towers of microwaves and the staff that worked at the warehouse always hated the studio because like their bosses were telling us that they needed to put product aside for us, pile it up, line it up by size, shape and color. But they're warehouse people. They're trying to fulfill orders. They're not there to like, help us. So that ended up being like a major (laughs) breakdown in two departments, just trying to work together. Like you have to be able to, you know, have a good 
leadership above that to be able to mesh those two things. Otherwise you're, you're going to get totally behind. Like we had to shoot tents. So lining up actually like having my assemblers and my product coordinators create like children's playgrounds and like camping tents and lining them up in the warehouse so that we could efficiently shoot them turned out to be a huge major disruption to them. So they were just like, Oh my God, when are these guys leaving getting out of here? Anyway, that was one of the, like arguably, I think that was one of the more challenging aspects of managing a studio at that level was that I found out and I don't know, I, I feel like I've heard that this is true kind of across the board for fulfillment center based studios but it is not uncommon for the studio and the fulfillment center at large to not get along super well. And mm-hmm. I think it stands to reason the fulfillment center has their own objectives, their own organizational structure. Totally. At least at Amazon, we were corporate Amazon employees and the employees of the fulfillment center were not. And for that reason, there was a lot of resentment and there was a lot yeah. of strategically using that status as a corporate employee to get the things that we wanted. Absolutely. Yeah, but also like the fulfillment center, you know, the same as the studio, like square footage in a fulfillment center matters as much as it does in a studio. And so like for us to carve out a significant amount of space from the fulfillment center, it, it created like challenges for them that sometimes manifested itself as like some pretty difficult conversations. Actually, that's a great way to transition because I'm sure that those types of conversations that you've had to have over the years have, I imagine, has kind of prepped you for being able to interview people and being able to actually be curious and work out kind of on the podcast how where people are coming from and giving them the chance to kind of speak about that. So like, has your ability to talk to people kind of set you up for this role as a chief evangelist slash podcast host? I will say that I've come around to the idea that this was like, a skill that I Mm -hmm. possessed, but wasn't really cultivating. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, to take it back to creative force offering me this job. So like I bounced around after Amazon, I was with Farfetch for a while. I was with the commercial studio for a while. And then COVID happened over the course of this. I had gotten invited to speak at an industry event in like 2000. I think I got invited initially in 2018 and couldn't do it that year. And then came back the next year to the IEN Creative Operations Exchange Conference that our colleague Sean O'Meara was putting together at the time. And that's, coincidentally, I've told this story to a handful of people over the years, that it was my interview with Juliana Vale when she was going to interview me to take on the photography supervisor job at Farfetch. She and Sean were already working together on these events. She was one of the advisory board members of these events. So it was at the Creative Operations Exchange Conference that I met Thomas and James and Ari, and we were in the market for, we went to that conference knowing that Creative Force was there, knowing that ShotFlow was there. Mm. And there was one other, and I'm, I can't remember the name, there was another production management software company that was there. I don't think they have like survived since that year. I can't remember the name of it. Mm. And we were like super interested in these things because we knew we needed it at the small studio. I, you know, I had come from Amazon where there was some system behind the scenes that was kind of home built and it had its problems. But like I was managing everything at conveyor with a Google sheet and I was literally like using Google sheets to like generate barcodes (laughs) and then had to like spent hours and hours aligning them so that they would print properly in my little printer so that I could at least barcode all of the product for Kendra Scott so that we could have some way of keeping track of it. And 
that's where, like I said, that's where I met Thomas and everybody. And then when COVID happened, our studio closed down. Conveyor did not survive COVID. And Sean at that point had come to work for Creative Force. And they had me come on to do some like webinars. If you remember early on in COVID, everybody in our industry was just like doing webinars because there was nothing really you else to do. To. <laughs> yeah, some of us were shooting from home, but we were kind of filling our time doing webinars and talking about how crazy everything was. Yeah. And then, you know, Thomas reached out to me and was interested in having me do some consulting work with them. And what they wanted me to do was make some videos explaining how Creative Force handled certain things, some sort of like mid-funnel marketing videos. So they gave me like a list of like 25 or 30 videos that I was going to make that had different aspects of the Creative Force platform. They gave me access to the platform. Mm-hmm. And then I fully expected, and I was hoping, in fact, that, that Creative Force would offer me a job. And I kind of <laughs> figured it would be in like customer success that I would be doing some onboardings given my background in studios and sort of my strange love for workflow and process improvement, mm-hmm. which is a thing that if you Asked me when I was like a kid if I'd ever be super passionate about process improvement. I probably would have been like, that seems kind of weird. But those <laughs> those proclivities, ha- I realize now, have always been there for me. I think I just told you the story about having to write out the same sentence over and over when I was like in fifth grade. And I yeah. sat there one night, was like writing it sentence by sentence and was like, I wonder if I can do this faster if I write each word at the same time. Like even <laughs> one word of the sentence on each line at the same, like I tried all the, and I, I realized now that I was always like that. Is there a faster way for me to dry all of these dishes? Is there a faster way for me to put all of these dishes away? If I take a moment to organize things, can I do this other part of it faster? Yeah. And it bleeds into other areas of life, you know, yeah. like it's not just work. It ends up like actually coming up a lot. <laughs> so Thomas hit me with a complete curveball, which is they wanted to hire me to come on the team. They wanted me to be the chief evangelist which I was vaguely familiar with this title, but I had no idea what it was. And part of my job was to be that I would be hosting a podcast. And I had no expectation of this coming. It completely blindsided me. Truly, and I th- I mean this sincerely, I had never even considered doing a podcast before. Like I've, really? been a podca- I've been a podcast listener for a very long time. It was actually in that first job at Smith & Noble in the studio because I was often in that studio by myself that I first even started listening to podcasts sometime around like 2009 or 2010. Wow. So you didn't even, like you weren't on like a podcast before this. I'd never been on a podcast. All. I'd never considered starting a podcast. I had no idea how to do, I mean, I had a vague idea of how you would do a podcast, but thankfully we started doing it at a time when the podcast industry was pretty mature. And so there was a lot of, you know, especially over the course of COVID, people had built tools like the one that we're using now to be able to record remotely and like inexpensive microphones, like all the pieces were in place for us to like pretty easily figure out how to do this. Well, I think that's why you sit in a really, really unique spot and why it's interesting to explore how and what you've learned from doing this and being curious and inviting guests and interviewing guests and basically allowing them to be experts around you who's asking the questions. I think it's a really, really fascinating thing to ask you about what specifically do you find the most interesting when you're interviewing guests and not to play favorites, but like, did you have any like real epiphanies when, you know, interviewing guests on what types of things you were most interested in as a host and kind of, did you experience any kind of new Like, I don't know. How do I even put it? (laughs) You know what I'm getting at? (laughs) So I I think like one of the things that I learned really quickly is that 
even though I feel like I have a pretty decent breadth of experience in my own, like when I was working in studios, that I still like from Smith & Noble to Nordstrom to Amazon to Farfetch to Conveyor was still living in a pretty small niche within the niche, which is the in-house, outside of Conveyor, the in-house product studio. And that like I had never worked for a brand and so I was super unfamiliar with the challenges around planning for a studio that works around seasonal cycles. Mm-hmm. And so like my very close friend, Adam Parker, and I, who got hired on to Creative Force at the same time, this is part of the reason I think him and I worked so well together is that we complemented each other in that way because he'd come from like Levi's and some other brands where like planning for seasonality and the timing required to get a set of images ready to go for a new season's launch was entirely different than the places where I had worked, where it was just a constant flow of product coming through. I realized really quickly that there was like vast parts of this industry that I felt like was so small and so well known to me that I had zero experience in. All right. Well, I think where are we at in time? Because I yeah, don't want to no, that, like. That's got to be it. We've recorded a lot. <laughs> it's going to be heavily edited. edited. That's it for this episode of the e-commerce content creation podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The show is produced by Creative Force, edited by Calvin Lands. Special thanks to Sean O'Meara. This episode was hosted by Caitlin Andrews. I'm Daniel Jester. Until next time, my friends. Boy, that list of names is getting long. Hey, Ian. Hey, Ian.